Also, I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Terri Ann Scott. I mean, I've lost count of the number of times we've had you here over the years, right? So I'm going to introduce her, though I feel like at this point, it's like, they know who you are. But uh, nevertheless, uh, always uh, pleased to have you. Uh, Dr. Scott is an award-winning historian, author, and speaker. Uh, she very bravely and courageously, and I think she's going to share with us some of the story, uh, left her position as a tenured associate professor of American history and chair of the Department of History at Hood College in Maryland to become the director for the Institute of Common Power, uh, which works to foster, support, and amplify a democracy that is just and inclusive. Dr. Scott earned her doctorate in history from the University of Chicago and received a master's degree with distinction from Southern Methodist University. She's frequently featured on regional and national media programs, including NPR and the History Channel. Uh, last time you were on NPR, a number of people were like, did you hear Dr. Scott? She's on NPR. <laughs> She's the author of several books, including uh, Lynching and Leisure, uh, Race and the Transformation of Mob Violence in Texas, and she's the editor of the forthcoming anthology, Reclaiming Democracy, A History of Voter Suppression and a Handbook for Voting Justice. Welcome, and we look forward to hearing from you in a little bit. Part of what Dr. Scott will be speaking about in a few moments is the historical echoes between the Selma to Montgomery marches and our own situation, our own predicament and time today. Her uh, topic reminds me of President Obama's second inaugural address in which he spoke some memorable passages that also had historical echoes, in this case, to uh, Jefferson and King. President Obama proclaimed that we, the people, declare today that the most evident of truths that all of us are created equal is the star that guides us still. Just as it guided our forebears, and notice this, through Seneca Falls, Selma, and Stonewall. Just as it guided all those men and women, sung and unsung, who left footprints across this great mall, to hear a preacher say that we cannot walk alone, to hear a king proclaim that our individual freedom is inextricably bound to the freedom of every soul on earth. It turns out President Obama can write, right? <laughs> with that memorable passage, the part that most strongly resonated with me, as well as a number of other folks, was that our nation's first black president chose to inscribe into the annals of American history that formulation, Seneca Falls, Selma, Stonewall. It would have been enough to rest on the rich symbolism of that day alone. It would have been enough for President Obama to rest on the historic sweep of Jefferson to Lincoln to King to himself. It would have been enough to celebrate the re-election to the highest office in the land of an African-American named Barack Hussein Obama. But President Obama's alliterative allusion to Seneca Falls Selma and Stonewall, he chose to point beyond himself, beyond the significance, profound as it is, embodied in his own person, to the larger sweep of social justice movements in our country of which he is a part. Dr. Melissa Harris Perry, an African-American political scientist, pundit, and Unitarian Universalist, described the importance this way. She said, when the president name-checked the watershed movements of women's rights, civil rights, and lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender equality movements, he offered a powerful moment of official recognition. The stories that we choose to tell, it really matters. 
And seeing that story, that interconnected, intersectional story of the struggle for human rights that spans Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall, learning to see that story, that's our story, as a quintessential American story, fulfilling the Jeffersonian promise that he himself could not fulfill, that was laid out in the Declaration of Independence. That is a powerful story for us to learn better and to be able to proclaim boldly. That social justice story can shape us, our society, and the society we hope to create for future generations. Good morning. Good morning. The stories we tell matter, as Reverend Carl just noted. I said to him recently, you know, I'm going to talk a little bit about history this morning. Is that okay? And he said, well, we wouldn't invite a historian if we didn't want to hear about history. So thank you for that. First and foremost, I would like to say thank you, not only for inviting me to speak. I do move around a lot, I want to tell you that, so if I veer a little too far from the microphone, give me a little signal and I'll come on back. I was scheduled recently to speak, and the Saturday before the time I was to come, my daughter was in a car accident. I would received a lot of messages from many of you. I want to say thank you for that. Thank you for opening your hearts. Thank you for your patience and understanding. I could write an entire sermon just about her. Kathleen, I have twins as well. She is one of them. She's 20 years old, and in an instant, everything was taken from her. When I talk about, and when people talk about heroes, sometimes we use that term loosely, she has become my hero. She broke several vertebrae in her neck. She was in Seattle doing voting work, registering people to vote. She had spent two weeks in August in Wisconsin registering people to vote. She's a junior. She was starting her junior year this year at NYU. She had just signed a modeling contract. And in that instance, everything was taken. And she has never, not one time, been angry, been mad. Somebody asked her about it, and she said, I just look at what I'm going to do next. She didn't have any spinal cord injury, thank God. She did have what is considered to be one of the most painful surgeries that anyone can have. She went from being in a wheelchair to a walker to walking with a cane. And when I tell you now that she walks with that cane as though it is just part of her outfit and you can't tell that she needs it, that's what she does. So she is my hero without question. I marvel at her ability to get up and keep going and be happy about what's coming. So I just wanted to mention that first. The title of the sermon that I'm going to give today for such a time as this, we know that right now in this world there is so much going on. So we could pick what we wanted to talk about when we're saying for such a time as this. From politics to social issues to the blending of those two. How do we sustain our attempts to change the world? I need to start somewhere else before that, and it sounds like Reverend Carl next week when you're talking about rest is resistance, that is brilliant. And so you will cover that. But first, before we can sustain our attempts, I started to think about this, and I'm thinking we have to discover and determine what our passion is first. How do you choose to change the world? What does it mean to change the world? And we will get to some of that. So instead, for such a time as this, what is your Selma? is my question. What is your Selma? And before I start to talk about that changed focus, I want to talk about how I arrived at this, because my Selma has changed. This is a picture of my parents, Micheline Wume 
who is a Haitian immigrant. My father, William Schulte, born on a farm in Iowa. I grew up in Chicago. This is them in Chicago, just a few years before I was born. I grew up just outside the city, and if you know anything about the city of Chicago, you know that Dr. King said when he went there in 1966, it was more racist than Birmingham. And he experienced that racism, and so did I. And so I had surmised growing up, because I was called all sorts of names, it didn't matter if I was of mixed race, that if I could somehow teach people about the history of this country, that if I could somehow explore and explain and expose more about the trials and tribulations and, and triumphs that I could do my part to dismantle racism. And I never let go of that. So it's not a platitude. It's not some odd dream that we can have. It works. Education matters. Exposure matters. And so I stuck to that. When I was 15, I started to read all about African-American history. I had always been a straight-A student, started to fail. Kids, you can fail very quickly when you don't do the work you're supposed to do in class. And I got back on track with a few threats from my parents. But it was at that moment at 15 that I determined I wanted to teach African-American history. I wanted to be a professor, and I stayed that course. As Reverend Carl mentioned, I, um, my undergraduate degree was in history. My master's degree was in history. My doctorate was in history. I started to teach at the University of Washington, and then I got tenure and became an associate professor of United States history and African-American history and the chair of the department at Hood College, the first African-American to ever hold that post. And something about tenure, only 15 to 30 percent of people who have a doctorate ever actually attain it. 15 to 30 percent. My friend, some of whom you know, Emily Ampt, who was the chair when I came in at Hood College, said, we won the tenure lottery. Black women constitute only about 2% of tenured faculty at colleges and universities. 2%. And yet I resigned from that position. There are times when I have told people since then where I can hear them gasp. <gasps> Cannot believe that I would do that. It's not because I don't love teaching. I still love teaching. And I continue to do so. I still love to try to have some influence on young people's lives. But my Selma changed. What was my Selma and how do we figure it out? Why did it change? Why am I even talking so much about Selma? And I love that President Obama made that connection, those watershed moments. And so when I say I am a historian and true to who I am, we're going to talk for just a few minutes about that Selma. Why is Selma significant? How do we see ourselves in that particular moment? And it begins with voting. The Selma I'm talking about happens in March. There's a campaign in Selma to make sure that African Americans get the right to vote. In 1867, it was extended to black men. In 1870, through the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment that extends the right to vote for women did not apply. Legally it did, but did not apply to African American women in the South. And to register to vote, you had to go through all sorts of hoops. For instance, being asked by the registrar, how many jelly beans are in this jar? How many bubbles are on this bar of soap? Or how many windows are on the White House? And if you get any of those wrong, you do not get registered to vote. There were counties across the South where not a single African-American was registered to vote. In the state of Mississippi, under 6% of black people were registered to vote, a change from almost 70% during Reconstruction. 
And if none of those other tactics work, then violence would be the work. This is Sheriff Jim Clark, for instance, in Selma, Alabama. And that button there is the button he wore, never, never integration, always segregation, never the right to vote, never. And so this 1965 Voting Rights Act that is born from Selma, it doesn't just secure the right for African Americans to vote, it has safeguarded voting rights for people from different communities across this country. It works broadly to make sure we have the right to vote. And in 2013, parts of it were chopped away, and we're trying to restore those now. The struggle does not end, but it is much different from what it once was. And decades of this civil rights activity would culminate on that bridge. And of course, we see the late, great Congressman John Lewis standing here, because he would lead that march across Selma. Dr. King noted, because he had been arrested in February of 1965, after teachers had attempted to register to vote, half of them were fired from their jobs for doing so. He said there are more black people in jail with me than there are on the voting rolls. And it was after the murder of Jimmy Lee Jackson that people said we need to act right now. People had been struggling for this right to vote for decades, trying to dismantle segregation for decades. This is not the first moment, but Selma was something different. Jimmy Lee Jackson was a 26-year-old veteran who had been pushing in a campaign in Marion, Alabama for people to extend, to get the right to vote, to safeguard that right, for the federal government to get involved and make sure that democracy extended to all. And during a night march when police were beating his mother and trying to disperse those protesters, he puts his arm up to protect her and he's shot in the stomach and killed. And it was his death that would kick off that Selma march. Here's John Lewis here as a 25-year-old. And he would lead 600 marchers across that bridge that would go from Selma to Montgomery because at first what James Bevel, one of the civil rights activists, said is we should take the body of Jimmy Lee Jackson and take it right to the Capitol there in Montgomery and deliver it to George Wallace. And instead they voted for a symbolic march. And they would march those 54 miles to insist on bringing national attention to what was happening there in the South. They did not make it that day, March 7, 1965. As they begin to get to the crest of the bridge, they could see Sheriff Jim Clark's posse and other people from the town who were not in law enforcement but ordained themselves that day to be, on horseback, on foot, with gas masks, worried as they were at the top of that bridge that people were going to throw them over into the Alabama River, knowing that they could be beaten. One of the people who was in that march was the youngest person ever to walk in that march, 11-year-old Joanne Bland. I have the honor of being able to call her my friend. She was 11 years old, and by the time she stood on that bridge on March 7th, she had been arrested 13 times already, and yet she persisted. And now she talks to people. And that line, what is your Selma, is not mine. It is Joanne Bland's. What is your Selma? And as they come off of that bridge, they are told to go back to their church or their homes. And as they begin to send communication through the line that they should kneel and pray in that moment, they are set upon by that posse. They are beaten Tear gas is thrown into those crowds. People begin to run back to the church, 
a longtime civil rights activist and one of the most respected women in the city, Amelia Boynton, was not unconscious. And it made national news. And that made much of the difference. Because here you have these peaceful protesters who are being attacked. And so people all over the country, from here in Maryland to Boston to Seattle, could see what was happening in the South and say, how can this happen in America? And by the second attempt, because there would be three attempts, March 9th, Dr. King joins that march. He had been preaching in Atlanta. As much as he was doing around the country, he always tried to make it a point to be in Atlanta on Sunday. His successor, Reverend Warnock, who just got reelected, also does the same thing. Make sure to preach at the same church, Ebenezer, on Sundays. And so the second attempt, he had been told by Judge Johnson, do not cross that bridge because you're going to be arrested, but we'll try to get you some sanctioning so that you can go across that bridge with those marchers. So on that second day, King had to decide what to do. Do I lead them into this violence or do we kneel and pray? He had made a call out for clergy from around the country to come to Selma to join this fight. And they did. From 600, we went to 2,000. And they kneeled, and they prayed, and then they turn around, and they go back to the churches, waiting for Judge Johnson to give them the order to say that they can go all the way to Montgomery with protection. And one of the people who joined in that call was Unitarian Universalist pastor, Reverend James Reed from Boston. 38-year-old man with four children who came down, and he was on that bridge that second day on March 9th, and he decided to wait and to stay in Selma until the judge would issue that order because he wanted to make sure that he, too, could complete that march all the way to Montgomery. And white supremacists hit him with a club in the head, and he died. It didn't matter what color you were when you engaged in this fight for justice and righteousness. You could be subject to death, and they knew that that could happen, and yet they went. And once again, the nation sees this death, and it forces LBJ to push for what would become the Voting Rights Act. He goes on television and invokes the words of the, of the movement and says, we shall overcome. And on that third attempt, he does provide security for the marchers. And by March 25th, 25,000 people had come from around the country, crossing racial and ethnic and religious boundaries, intergenerational group, and they made it to Montgomery. And by August, the Voting Rights Act was passed. And in places like Mississippi, where the number of people registered to vote who were African-American was 5.75%, because of this, within a few years, it was 69, 65.5%. They made a difference. As young as 11 years old, they got on the bridge and they walked across it knowing what would happen to them, understanding the history of pushing for civil rights in this country. That was their Selma. So what is our Selma going to be? What is the thing for which you will risk much? Some people have risked all. This is not what I'm asking you to do. What I'm asking, and it's wonderful, I have to say, the energy and being here, because I know so many of you are doing so much in the community to make a difference. It is overwhelming. And I'm always so happy when you extend an invitation to me to come and talk. Sometimes you speak to groups and you have to push and motivate to do something. You guys are doing so much. So thank you. And for those who are looking for something, what is your Selma? 
for those who are doing something, but maybe it doesn't feel like the thing that you want to do. What is your Selma? What is the thing that you will risk much for? My Selma changed. I go back at the end where I started. I left that position at Hood not because I didn't love what I was doing, because I did, and I still do. I needed to transform what it meant to do what I was doing. Something was pulling me in a different direction. So I made the leap. I may never, if I wanted to, get back into academia. It didn't matter. It was worth it because there was too much going on in this country, and I decided I had to try to have some influence outside of that. And so when I was asked to become the director of the Institute for Common Power, I said yes. And I am happy to talk to any of you about it. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that pushes to dismantle systems of injustice. And we launched in June, and we are doing everything that we can to make a difference, from lectures and workshops and conferences to what we just engaged in, and I'm going to call you out, Brandon, I'm sorry to do so, an educator learning tour where we took a group of K through 12 educators through Atlanta, through Selma, Birmingham, Montgomery, because we have an assault on truth in this country right now too, where districts across this country don't want truth to be taught. And so we have to support our teachers and empower them. And so we've extended scholarships to them. This is one of the programs that makes my heart so happy, the Truth and Purpose Learning Experience for Educators. We were gonna do it once a year, but when we came back in October, and we mentioned this when we were on the trip, you could feel the energy and the power, and it was beautiful, and now we're doing it three times a year. And we have a new cohort of K-12 educators coming from all over uh, um, the United States and Canada this time. And we started another program, Scholars in Motion, which is for kids who live in government-funded housing so that they can have the same kind of chance that other kids have whose parents can give them tutors and train them for SATs, and that's what we're extending to them. Yesterday, or Friday, we were in New York City on a college visit with them. A young woman who had a 4.4 and didn't see herself as able to go to the next level. And so we're trying to interfere, to disrupt, to change course. That's my new Selma. So what is your Selma? And when I talked about in the beginning that I'll wrap up with at the end, when we change the world, you don't have to lead a march across a bridge to change the world. You could say something kind to a young child who is struggling, and that changes their world and changes this world. Maybe that's your Selma. Maybe kindness simply to others is your Selma. Maybe tutoring is your Selma. Maybe teaching is your Selma. Maybe what you're doing doesn't feel right, and so I encourage you to talk to others, to research, to discover your Selma. Because when we talk about sustaining our energy to change the world, the first step that you have to do is feel the passion for the thing that you're doing. That's the first step. So what is your Selma? Thank you all so much. Our chalice distinguishing words are from a book that I think would be a powerful uh, follow-up to this uh, to this morning's words from Dr. Scott. For, it's a book by one of our best and most compelling UU historians named Mark Morrison Reed. 
It's titled The Selma Awakening, How the Civil Rights Movement Tested and Changed Unitarian Universalism. So check that out if you haven't and are interested. I want to share with you as our child's extinguishing words just the final paragraph or two from that book. Uh, Morrison Reed writes, Unitarian Universalists did not know that Selma would become a pivotal moment in our movement, in our history, but called, sent, drawn, compelled, hundreds of UUs responded when Dr. King asked. When they left there, there were two UU martyrs in their heart. The first was Reverend Jim Reeb that uh, you powerfully mentioned. The other was Viola Liuza, a Unitarian uh, laywoman, I think also from Chicago, who uh, was driving marchers back from Montgomery to Selma. They thought it was all over, and uh, they were uh, attacked and killed by uh, KKK members. They left with two UU martyrs in their heart, and there was conviction in their stride. It is not possible nor necessary to know what the ultimate outcomes of our actions will be. Therefore, we act in faith. Faith asks not that we succeed, but that we at least try. We try because we yearn to live out our values, and conscience urges us on. For we have dreamed of a better, more just tomorrow. We care, therefore we act, and in acting, we risk having our hearts broken a thousand times. Therefore, we are sustained by hope. That is the price that those who cleared the way for us accepted. It is what living fully, freely, and with integrity demands. May we live in such a way that our children and grandchildren will look back on us and be grateful for our legacy that we have handed on to them, of being known as a people who, when faced with injustice, chose to use their freedom to stand up, to speak up, to show up in solidarity with all those who need it. May it be so.